Today's psalm is Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions. From us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. Thank you, Lisa. Now, it'd be lovely if uh, people can open you the Bible on your phone, like uh, Psalm 103, if you've got it there. If you don't have a phone and you need a Bible in your hands, um, can you just put your hand up and um, we'll just try and get one to you. So it'd be lovely if people have Psalm 103 open up for them. Okay. And uh, apologies that we're sort of on abbreviated services today, <laughs> New Year. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Here we go. Ready? And Zupa Dupas are being handed out too, I think. Is that right? For anyone who needs one. You've got them? Okay, good. Here we go. When we do it, it's impossible to keep our arms still. We shout out loud when we do it. Kids at Christmas time do it. Sports fans and music lovers do it. Gardeners do it in the springtime. 
Young lovers can't help doing it. And you know what it is, don't you? Praising. Today I want to talk about the activity of praising, not just singing in church, but doing what we do all the time as sports lovers or lovers of fine music or of glorious gardens or of majestic scenery or as someone in love. When you're so awestruck with something or someone else that you can't help, you can't stop yourself talking about this thing uh, or this person and declaring how wonderful they are. That is what the Bible means when it speaks of praising God. Opening your mouth and putting into words how great God is because you can't possibly keep your mouth shut and stop yourself speaking about how great God is. Now you may say, that's not me. I'm not exuberant like me. Uh, That's for the extroverts. But when you think about it, we do praise people and things all the time. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the Christian writer said, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising one another, readers, their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Think of that quiet guy you know, the guy who scarcely says boo to a goose, but you put him in front of his favorite footy team and he just comes alive, right? Praise is a part of all of us. C.S. Lewis says the psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all people do when they speak of what they care about. Now I take it we are here because we care something about God. We value him. And so it should be no surprise for us to be called to praise God, to speak out loud about how wonderful he is. Psalm 103, which is intentional as our kickstart for the year, is a call for us to praise God. Um, This call to praise dominates the psalm. It begins with the call, it says praise the Lord. It ends with it. Last verse, praise the Lord. Now, who is he talking to? That's easy, we say he's talking to God. Not so, not so. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself, isn't he? So more than being a call to praise God, this psalm is actually a personal call to praise God. Sure, he may call upon the whole world to praise God at the end, but chiefly he's calling upon himself to praise God. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Those words begin the psalm, those words end the psalm. So when we pick up this psalm and we read his words, we find ourselves, um, when we're reading out loud, we find ourselves talking to ourselves. And effectively, what we're saying is, self, what you need to do is praise the Lord. Um, We are calling upon ourselves to do it. We are talking to ourselves, saying, you've got to praise the Lord. And as we start the new year and we press reset, I want to say it's good for all of us to call upon ourselves to praise the Lord for two reasons. Number one, there is something about praise. um, Praise completes our enjoyment of God. In the same way that your enjoyment of a view isn't nearly so strong when you silently view it as when you stand with someone else and you open your mouth and you speak about how wonderful the view is. You say, that is glorious. Um, 
Just as a brilliant football goal isn't half as much enjoyed when we're quiet as we, we, when we can audibly yell out, that was fantastic, do you see that, what a goal. Just as our enjoyment of things we value is heightened by expressing what we feel inside, so too with our enjoyment of God. Our praise does something to us, it caps, it caps our enjoyment of him. You know, you may know of God's goodness to you deep inside, but to be able to say, God really has been good to me, that completes our enjoyment of him. And that's why praise is an activity of heaven. Second reason is praise keeps our love alive. Remember that the, in the history of God's people, the Israelites perished in the wilderness because they forgot how good God had been to them. They forgot to praise God. Their hearts grew hard, uh, their hearts grew cold, and their love grew cold, and they perished. On our RSL clubs, we have the phrase, lest we forget. Remembering is a very important thing. Otherwise, the value of something fought for in the past is lost. Okay, our praise of God, that is remembering, putting it into words, keeps our love alive. And so it's good to call upon ourselves to praise God. Now, it's good to cultivate that sense of praise about God where we can't help but talk about his goodness. Now you at the moment, you may feel a million miles from praising God. And all of us have times like that. And for some of us, it's quite often. But praise God for Psalm 103 because this psalm is extremely helpful. Psalm 103 is written to help us when our praise just isn't coming, right? It's a kind of remedy for reluctant praises because David himself, who writes the psalm, is a reluctant praiser. He doesn't begin the psalm praising God, Lord, I praise you because, no. When he says, praise the Lord, O my soul, he's talking to himself, as we've said, He's saying, David, you need to praise the Lord. And why is he saying that? Presumably because he's not praising the Lord, right? He, in other words, is in a spiritual fug. And here's how he's getting himself out of it. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Because David knows his tendency, he knows himself, his tendency inside it is to forget. Just like the Israelites, just like all of us. Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, said the best description of man is a thankless biped. Well, that includes us. And so this psalm, written by a reluctant praiser with a tendency towards forgetfulness, is very helpful as a remedy against forgetfulness. It reminds us that praise begins with a sort of godly discipline not to forget. And so what does David do? He's got, he's, he's, his engine of praise is sputtering. So to kickstart it, to jumpstart it, what does he do? He counts his blessings, names them one by one. He lists them out one by one, the benefits of the Lord to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins. That's the first wonderful thing we can be thankful for. Who heals all your diseases. Now, if you're sitting here tonight, 
and you're in good health, then guess what? God has healed all your diseases. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord who redeems your life from the pit. Obviously, David's been in danger and he, is, he has been rescued. How many times do you think you would have died if God was not protecting you in your life? How many near misses have you had in your life? Just go back, think. Would I normally naturally be? No, I wouldn't. I would have been snaffled out numerous times. Praise the Lord who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with love and compassion. Obviously, um, David is aware how good God has been to him. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David is getting on. But he's still energized by the good things that God has given him. There is value in each of us pausing to list out for ourselves God's benefits towards us. And so I ask myself, the first day of the new year, how has God been good to me? And you can ask yourself, how has God been good to you? Can you count his blessings, name them one by one? Can you list them out? All of us will be able in some degree to identify with the blessings David has listed, forgiveness of sins, healing of diseases, those moments when we're aware of God's compassion and his love when we didn't deserve it, our desires being satisfied. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Okay, so that's how he starts. Next, David steps up a gear in verses 6 to 19 when he, to tell himself of how God has been good not only to himself, but to all of God's people, to the people of Israel. And if we are to follow David's pattern, we are to tell ourselves also of how God has been good not just to ourselves, but to his people right throughout all the ages. So how do you do it? Well, David follows a very simple formula. He tells himself, again, of what God has done. That is, he focuses on God's actions. And then he tells himself of what God is like. He focuses on God's character. Actions and character. So first of all, verse six and seven, here's God, God's actions. David reminds himself, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. That's what he does. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. That's what he's done, all right? Actions, and what he does is save. He did that in the Exodus, didn't he? when he rescued the Israelites from slavery under Pharaoh. That's what God does, he saves. And also what he's done is to make known his ways as the savior to Israel. So he reflects on God's actions. We might say, well hang on, so what? So what about those things? Good for those people, but so what for us? In triumphing over Egypt's gods and saving the Israelites, how is the world really changed now? Uh, we may ask, in triumphing over Satan through Christ's death and resurrection and in saving us, how has that changed the world? Well, verse 19 puts it very clearly. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. That is, in the very act of saving those people who fear him, God has established something which we need to tell ourselves over and over again that there's a new reality because of what God's done. Um, 
above all other earthly kingdoms and rulers, there is the ruler, God, and his resurrected Christ, and his throne is established over his kingdom, which has people in it, real people in it, and he rules over all. This happens because of what God has done. So David's told himself again of God's action in saving and, and in being king, and uh, he's thankful. This has changed the world. And from there, David naturally turns to God's character as savior and king. Verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. Now these words don't just sort of spring into David's mind. They aren't just the figment of his creativity or something. Uh, he's thinking again back to the Exodus. So you'll remember the story. God rescues his people, right? Brings them through the Red Sea, brings them to Mount Sinai. But then because Moses is too long up the mountain, the people have Moses' brother, Aaron, melt down their gold into a calf and then in a slap in the face to the God who saved them, they all bow down and worship the image of a lifeless cow. Now, understandably, the Lord, who is with Moses on the top of the mountain, becomes so angry that he tells Moses that now he's going to wipe out the lot of them and just begin again with Moses. And then Moses begs God to relent. And then when any of us, if we were in God's shoes, we would have remained angry, grace upon grace, God relents. Exodus chapter 32, verse 14. And then God takes Moses and he hides him in a cleft of the rock on the mountain and the Lord passes by Moses and he does it to reveal what he's like on the inside, what he's, the Lord is like in his character. Um, this is a dangerous thing. The Lord has to cover Moses with his hand until only God's back is in view. And he does this so that Moses won't die. But as he passes by, the Lord proclaims his name, his character. And he proclaims this, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. That is what the Lord is like internally. And these are the words David mentions here. And in view of the pardon that the Lord has just shown the Israelites, that is exactly who he is. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And it is this gracious, gracious mercy of God towards his people, which David sees, is his greatest benefit towards him. Um, when you stop and think, what is God's greatest benefit towards you? What would you say? Um, your family. Um, your job or your security, your education, uh, your looks, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Most people think no, <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's you. Um, David doesn't want to forget any of God's benefits and that's why he lists them out first of all. But whilst David is aware of the many, many benefits from God, the one benefit that David does not and will not let himself forget, the central benefit which he has experienced in his own life and has been born out in Israel's own life, the supreme benefit which dominates 
his appreciation of God, the most wonderful benefit to him which fills the horizon of his spectrum of praise is God himself. God is a God of unfathomable and pardoning grace. Okay, what does this mean to us? Is God's grace so wonderful to you that you can't help but talking about it? Uh, I went to a New Year's Eve party last night. Did I speak of God's grace to anyone there? Slightly to one person, but I think I need to recapture it again, actually. You see, my hunch is that there's a reason why we make light of God's grace. We make light of grace because we make light of what puts us in need for grace. We make light of our sin. It's human nature to pretend that we're not really that bad because we say to ourselves, we're not as bad as other people. I remember once chatting to a drunk in a gutter at Narrabri, a central town in northern New South Wales. And I was trying to share with him the gospel. <laughs> and uh, he said to me that he was really quite a good person because he, he wouldn't ever steal off anyone who wasn't insured. <laughs> All right, that is, he'd only steal off people who he knew were insured. So you can see how he's justifying himself. He was placing him above the thief who stole off the uninsured, right? Okay, now I just, I just want, if you laughed, just stick up your hand if you laughed because you thought you'd never do that. You wouldn't be like that drunk who, okay, right? <laughs> um, you may remember that that's kind of what the Pharisee did in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18. Um, Lord, I praise you that I'm not like other men. This one. Okay. We justify ourselves, don't we, by looking down on other people to minimize our sin. But where are we looking? In looking down at others, you see where our direction is, don't you? We are not looking up to God, are we? Looking down on others. In other words, we're not looking up and we're not seeing the gap between ourselves and the Lord who is holy who is so different to us, who is pure and undefiled. And if we don't see that gap and feel it, we are not seeing then the grace of the Lord to us in pardoning our sin and overcoming that gap. We're failing to appreciate God's grace because we've got our eyes off him. And yet I want you to take note in this psalm, three times in the psalm, David says that God's love is not on all people. Did you notice that? God's love is for those who fear him. Fearing God means honestly facing up to and appreciating the seriousness of our sin. That's what it means to fear the Lord. Um, Einstein once said, it's not the powerful explosion of the atom bomb which frightens us, but the hateful power of the human heart. He said the true problem is in the heart of each of us. And if we're honest, we know that to be true, don't we? Um, we ourselves have had people who've thrown grenades of hate into the cafes of our lives. And there's carnage, and some of us still bear the wounds of that. And yet we also know that we've 
perhaps done it to other people too. Or at least we've had the capacity to done it. We felt, we felt the temptation, the urge. I remember when I was at Bible college, one college lecturer who was very, very erudite man. He used to quote Plato and all these different people. And uh, he was lecturing ab about the doctrine of human sin and at one point he just left his notes and he just eyeballed us and he said something so profound I had to write it down. He said, just off the cuff, he said, we all have a, the capacity for infidelity. It's domesticated most of the time, but under stressful conditions, it can be Holocaustian in its implications. I thought, that is the best sentence I've ever heard, so I wrote it down. <laughs> um, but it's true, isn't it? Uh, we all do have a capacity for infidelity against God. It is domesticated most of the times. We behave ourselves mostly. But under stressful conditions, it can be Holocaustian, horrific when it comes out, the cat out of the cage. What's he saying? He's saying we all have it within us. We have the potential, we have the inclination. Sin is not something we do, fundamentally it's something we are. We're not sinners because we commit sin, we commit sin because we're sinners. We are not as we ought to be. And when you understand that, and you realize there's something deeply wrong. And then you think on God's decision to treat those who fear him with grace, not as our sins deserve, then it is astounding. What does God's grace towards us consist of? Well, first of all, in verse nine, a commitment not to, be, not to remain angry. David says, he will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. Some of you may live under a cloud thinking that God is always angry with you, always just the finger on the button is all of extermination, he's just, he's just hovering there, right? There is a determination within God not to remain angry with his children, not to remain angry forever. He's different to us. You see, we bear grudges, but so strong is God's determination not to hold onto his anger against his children that what he does we remembered at Christmas, he enters our world and then he pours it out on himself, his anger, upon himself in the person of his son when he dies on the cross. Christ suffered so that in God's grace, God will not remain angry forever. So that's the first aspect of God's grace. Secondly, God's grace consists of his overflowingly generous mercy in verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. Uh, if you've been here, you've heard before that illustration of that moment in the life of Napoleon, the French uh, emperor, where he was on a military campaign and a young deserter in his army was brought before him and Napoleon ordered that the young man be shot. The young man's mother was there and she quickly intervened and she pleaded for mercy and then Napoleon came back and said, he doesn't deserve mercy. And then the woman replied with insight, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. I don't know what happened to him, but it was a good point. <laughs> mercy is not deserved. Mercy is God not treating us as our sins deserve. Mercy is us not being punished when we deserve punishment. Mercy is the granting of a pardon to someone that deserves no pardon. 
So God not remaining angry forever, not treating us as our sins deserve, this is the grace that we're to tell ourselves is God's main benefit to us. And if we're struggling to understand really how great that could be, guess what, you're in good company because so is David. He says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that vast distance, as high as that, so great, is God's love for those who fear him. God's grace, you see. David says, as far as the east is from the west, not as far as north is from the south, that is a fixed distance, right? But if you've got a planet that revolves on its axis, as, this is the logic of the gospel, as far as east is from the west, which is a distance that can never be measured, it keeps going as the earth rotates. As far as east is from the rest, that far has God removed our transgressions from us. Um, if you could imagine a point on the globe which was east, you could not see the west, could you? God cannot see our sins that he has removed that far. That just as a father has compassion for his children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear him, even those who are not naturally his children. That's God's grace. That is, he is just so different to us. We can't understand the extent of this love that he has for us. We live in the world of the finite, don't we, where people are born and die. No sooner do they come onto the field of life and bloom for a time before they return to dust like the flowers. David says, we are mortal. Ours is the world of limits. Everything we know has a beginning and an end. We can't understand just how limitless is God's love for us. But that very fact just underscores how great it is that his gracious love has no limits. We can't compute that, but doesn't that just show how big it is? You know, imagine the biggest distance you can. God's love is bigger than that. That from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. It was there before we were conceived, and when we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. This is God's amazing grace. Now, of course, by this point, David has disciplined himself to praise the Lord, and in doing so, he's been chipping away at the kind of wall of the dam in his hard heart holding back the waters of praise. And he's been chipping away at it, and whereas the waters of praise kind of began in a trickle, now the wall is down, and the waters are gushing. Now in verse 20, he is aware once again of the cosmic size of the benefit that, that has become his, and he can't contain, contain himself. He calls on all of creation, in verses 20 to 22, to praise the Lord. You, his angels, all you, his heavenly host, all his works in all places of dominion, praise the Lord. Um, is there praise in your heart? I know it's hard on a hot night, but is there praise in your heart even when you're cool? Or has your heart grown cold towards God? Last year, did your heart warm up in praise or cool down in thankfulness? If our hearts have grown cold, we must do what David did. You begin by exercising the discipline of praise. You count your blessings. 
you name them one by one. And then it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You tell yourself of them. You list them out. And perhaps at the beginning of the talk you thought, well, you know, it's easy for David. He's more blessed than I am because he was the king of Israel. God had been so good to him. Do you know, in comparison to you, God knew, sorry, David knew very little of the spiritual blessings which belong to us in Christ. He knew little because of where he was in salvation history. You see, when David wanted a measure of God's love, the best he could do was to look at where the sun rose and set. Of course, we can do better, can't we? We look at the cross and we see the arms of God flung out wide to show us how much he loves us and how great is his determination not to remain angry forever. That much, okay? And so David, you rejoice that you've been redeemed from death, well so you should, God rescued you enough. But looking at the cross, we can rejoice that we have been redeemed from the pit of hell. And that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, because we've seen in the cross exactly what our sins do deserve, right? Well God doesn't treat us like that. Today is New Year's Day. It's no mistake I began this year with this psalm. Because as fuel for our souls, right, I want this year to be a year for all of us when we grow in our thankfulness to God. Our deep appreciation. Something we carry with us, something we live out. Now maybe for you, you're in a place, a rut, a fug, where the praise just won't come. Let Psalm 103 help you. If your heart has grown cold, well, praise the Lord. Tell yourself of his benefits. Do it tonight before you go to bed. And if your heart perhaps has always been cold, I don't know it, then think of the blessings which have been counted and ask whether they are true for you. Could you count them for you? Because you can, you see, they are there for those who fear the Lord and run to Jesus and grasp hold of him. Father in heaven, we praise you for the innumerable ways in which you have been good to us. We praise you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of forgiveness. We praise you for the small blessings in our life. We praise you for the goodness that you show to us each day. We praise you for the things that we're not even aware of your kindnesses to us. We praise you, God, for keeping us alive, for sustaining our life, and for filling us with good things. Heavenly Father, we praise you most of all that you are a God of immense grace, and you're a God who in action stepped into history to save us. Father, please grow our heart of thankfulness toward you, and help us to be able to speak your praises. May your the goodness of you be on our lips more this year than was last, the case last year. Give us an appreciation of what you've done. Help us by your spirit that our love for you would grow stronger and our talk of you would grow richer. In Jesus' name.